Good evening, good morning, whatever time it is, wherever you are, God is still in control. Today is uh, in the day of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God the Father, Jesus the Son. Today is 2022. 2022. 2,000 years plus 22. My grandmother used to tell me that the world would not stand for no more than 2,000 years. It has been 22 years more. Get yourself together. And get ready, because God is not in your gun, and God will not save you. Enjoy the broadcast. Today we're going to focus on um, America and its uh, love of guns, and how guns have been used to fight battles and wars and rumors of wars and years and years over here on earth. But there's a unique phenomenon here in America. America loves guns question is, how many guns do you have? Some people have four or five guns. Some people have two or three guns. Some people have one gun. One thing about America is that uh, we got more guns than we have people in America. And it is wrecking heaven. And it's going to get worse. Just remember, your guns will not save you. Your guns will not save you. It is a busy and high-stakes week at the U.S. Capitol, with lawmakers working to find a bipartisan compromise on guns and the January 6th Select Committee holding its first televised hearing to present its findings. To break it all down, I'm here with Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. And welcome to you both. I want to begin, of course, with this conversation um, on gun violence prevention measures and where it is here in Washington specifically with lawmakers. So, Amy, I'll put this big question to you because we've been having this conversation for a few days now. It has been almost 30 years, right. 30 years since the, uh, we uh, the um, assault weapons ban back in 1994, since there's been meaningful measures taken by lawmakers here. And after every horrific mass shooting, we say, is this time going to be different? Is this time going to be different? So based on where the conversations are now, there's been some optimism. Right. Is it going to be different? Well, it seems like we are having two different discussions right now. For Republicans, the focus is about behavior more than it is about guns. Mm -hmm. Doing more to flag people who have mental illness. Maybe doing more with background checks. But John Cornyn, who's the Republican senator, who's leading this, this the Republican leading uh, the bipartisan group on that side, is saying we're not going to do anything that would limit um, the magazine numbers right. uh, or take away anybody's guns or even put a ban on assault weapons back. So the issue is not about what kind of gun legislation can happen. It's going to happen really for Republicans based on uh, making changes to behaviors that they can regulate, i.e., if you've had a domestic uh, record, if there's something in your record that raises those quote-unquote red flags. And what you hear from Democrats, Chris Murphy, saying over and over again this weekend, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get 60 votes. Mm -hmm. So to me, that says, even though he would like to see much more expansive yeah. gun uh, reforms, he seems at least to be willing to take what Republicans are going to give on those um, on those issues 
in order to get something through. Tam, where's the president on this? We saw the primetime address, right? Sweeping calls for reforms yes. that are clearly not part of the Senate talks. Is he involved in any of these negotiations? No, he's not. Uh, he, as the White House would say, he, he's giving them space to work this out on their own. There, There is the potential whenever a president gets involved that then the politics harden, that whatever deal that seems possible in these in these smaller sessions stops seeing so, seeming so possible. Um, he has called repeatedly, as he did uh, in that speech, for a return to an assault weapons ban. He did say, but if that isn't possible, then at least raise the age to 21 to get an assault weapon. The Senate is not talking about that. There, is no, there are not 60 votes even for that. Um, so uh, he's not going to get what he's asking for, um, but he is someone who does take the long view, who was involved in passing, uh, integrally involved in passing that assault weapons ban back in the 1990s. He knew it, how long he spent working on that, uh, and, and he falls back to that when he expresses optimism. A lot has changed since then uh, that, that <laughs> makes it very difficult. But if the Senate were to pass these very um, uh, modest reforms that Amy talked about, mm -hmm. those would be the most sweeping reforms that Congress has passed yeah. since the assault weapons ban. Uh, and, and that is worth noting here, that even incremental progress is progress, given how long it's been. So even if they do move forward just on the red flag issue, right? But here, here's the thing I want to put to you, because Senator Cornyn was asked about this, and he said, look, if we don't get something done, after Uvalde in particular, that it would, quote, feed the narrative, we just can't get exactly. things done in right. the public exactly. interest. So is exactly. that helping to push things along? I think along? that's a big piece of this. But it's also clear, and we've already seen this from one Republican in the House, that for a Republican to come out and talk about guns in particular. A Republican congressman from upstate New York saying, yes, I think we should have a ban on assault weapons. His district abuts the a Buffalo, which of course had the horrific um, shooting there a few right. weeks back. He's decided not to run for re-election because of the blowback he was getting in his district, and he realized he couldn't win re-election. It's also part of the political reality. Yes. I want to ask you about another big story we're watching this week, Tam. The January 6th committee is going to hold its first public hearing on Thursday. That will be June 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern. We'll have live coverage here. Ten months of work they're going to make first present to the public in a, this primetime kind of presentation. What are you looking for in all this? Well, I, I'm looking for what's new and what's different. Um, and it's not clear yet. They, they are promising that there will be new pieces of information. Uh, and more than that, uh, members of the committee are, are promising a narrative that weaves it all together. All of these disparate storylines that people may have picked up along the way or heard weaves it all together. Um, but I what I'm looking for is whether they have any chance at all of breaking through, of, of um, you know, the, the public has only grown more divided on this. There are more and more Americans who don't consider what happened on January 6th to be a problem at all, who see the people who've been uh, arrested and charged with crimes as martyrs. Um, and so there's just this dramatic divide over what happened and whether it's a problem. And I don't know if this committee, even with its two Republicans, but two Republicans now in exile, basically, whether they're going to be able to bridge that divide. Yeah. Amy, what about that? Yeah. I mean, Adam Schiff, I should mention, said that the audience they're aiming for is one that still has an open mind about these facts. Who is, who is he talking about? Right. I don't know how many of those folks um, are still left. I think 
the open mind people, at least when I'm listening to voters and a lot of these focus groups, what they want to hear is what happens next. How do we prevent the, this from ever happening again? Mm-hmm. They're not as interested in relitigating what happens. What they want to see is people held accountable for doing things that were against the law, and then to say, let's make sure that we find a way to, to prevent this in the future. And so I think what they need to do, and they're not going to do this necessarily on Monday, but by the end of these hearings, to come out with, and here are our suggestions for ways for this not to happen again. And to, for those suggestions to sound reasonable and meaningful, that's going to be a challenge too. Yeah. And what about the president? Do we know? Is he going to be watching? Uh, I do not know. Um, uh, he, he will be attending the Summit of the Americas in uh, Los Angeles and has a busy schedule that may prevent watching that live. Um, so probably not this first one. Have we heard anything from the White House about what they expect or whether they're they're broadly paying attention to this, though? There's obviously a political calculus to this, right? We're yeah. see some of this in the midterms ahead. Uh, and they, they are broadly paying attention to it. Um, they have other really big problems like inflation. Uh, you know, it, it, watching focus groups, as I've done recently, um, no one mentioned January 6th. They all mentioned inflation. It's interesting to note. Tamara Keith, Amy Walter, always good to have you here. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been another spate of carnage and death this week. A dozen mass shootings have left 12 dead and nearly 60 more injured. And as we mentioned last night, the president delivered another nationally televised plea for common sense reform. But meaningful action continues to look like a legislative long shot on Capitol Hill. That brings us to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Gentlemen, very nice to see you. See you too, Um, David, we heard the president last night acknowledge that we are in this grotesque cycle of carnage, that innocent people are murdered by someone wielding this enormously powerful weapons, and he says we have to act. You have recently, sitting in that chair, said that these events move public opinion in a meaningful way, maybe not quickly, but they do. Do you think that is going to matter to the negotiators here in Washington, D.C.? Well, it's a long-term process. They move public opinion in sort of a ratchet fashion, that you see a rise for uh, support for gun regulation after, and then it trips down, but not back to where it was. So it's, it moves up, and the public opinion is gradually shifting. But this is a probably a decades-long process, and while this is happening, the Republican Party has been moved, moving firmer into more gun-friendly, and not only gun-friendly, but gun-aggressively-friendly direction. And so for the identity of conservatism has become gods and guns, or borders, bullets, uh, and babies, as one candidate said it. And so supporting guns has become almost a talisman, a sort of a visual signature for Republicans, what TSLA used to call an objective correlative, like the visual thing to symbolize an entire philosophy. And so I think what President said was compelling, but I don't think the Republican Party, if anything, they're moving in a very, very different direction. I mean, Jonathan, uh, as David says, we know Chris Murphy is currently talking with Republican senators, and he hints that there's some idea of progress. 
Others caution us that, that Mitch McConnell has his eye on the midterms and he recognizes what his base voters, as David is describing, what those primary voters care about, and it's guns. And so he's not going to allow anything to happen. Do you have any hope that this set of latest tragedies is going to do anything? I mean, I always have hope, but I'm a realist. Um, we've been here before, too many times before. The fact that Senator Murphy is sitting with a bipartisan group of senators and they're talking, that's a good thing. I want them to talk. But I have no faith that they will get to a point where they will have a press conference where they announce, here's our framework, here's our bill, here's our language, here are the items that we are calling for, and then to actually get that piece of legislation to a vote that breaks a filibuster. I mean, I've just laid out about three or four hurdles right there. Um, if the slaughter of babies at Newtown Elementary School, um, or Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, 10 years ago in December, wasn't enough to move the debate to the point where we're talking about gun safety laws or the murder of high school students at, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, if that then wasn't enough, then why should anyone expect the, the, the murder of 10 grade schoolers in Uvalde, Texas, to move, to move this conversation. It pains me to have to say that, but I've seen this ground, horrible Groundhog Day movie too many times, and I've heard the yeah, yeah, yeah out of Mitch McConnell too many times to believe that the action and the things that Senator Murphy is pouring his heart and soul into, I don't doubt his sincerity. He is absolutely sincere. I do doubt the sincerity of the people around that table, that they actually want to get something done. Uh, David, we know that it is these mass shootings that garner all the attention. All the, all the names that you riddled off, Jonathan, we know those so well. But the analysis of, of gun deaths in America show that it's, it's suicides and these much less publicized homicides that happen all the time. That's really the bulk of deaths because of firearms. When you look at the policy prescriptions that people are talking about, are there things that you think, if we could get this passed, this would make a dent in all of those deaths? Yeah, I think if you look at the history of gun regulation, assault weapons bans and other things, and if you look at the social science research, it's underwhelming. The effect of these is not nothing but it's underwhelming in, in actually preventing violence and crime. The one area where I think the research shows the gun regulation can really make a difference is on suicides. A lot of people commit suicide because they have a mood crash and there's a gun right there. And if you can make it harder to have a gun right there, then they will not commit suicide. A lot of people who attempt suicide never attempt it again. Right. And so I think the evidence is that that's the sort of thing uh, where you can really have an effect. And we should probably not be focusing as much as our hearts are rendered by events that Jonathan described. Gun violence is the main thing, as you said. And, and so I do think if we can focus on regulating the guns for, at those moments, and it's also important for Democrats to understand where Republicans are. The Republicans see guns as a way to defend their family. And so one of the things I think Democrats have not done, and I think Joe Biden did a pretty decent job in his remarks this week of saying, I honor gun owners. I honor responsible gun ownership. And that's important. And we should too. celebrate them, he said. Yeah. And, but we should distinguish 
between defensive gun use, which is people defending their family, and you know, they feel threatened by crime, and offensive use. And a lot of the weapons, a lot of the, the ammunition is for offensive use. And there's no place for offensive gun use in our society. That is just, we call that murder. And so I think reframing it in a way that would honor the gun owners in America is a potential way to shift the debate so we're not stuck in this Groundhog Day that we've been in. I mean, some of the things that David is mentioning um, do have a lot of broad appeal. But uh, as David is pointing out, it's very difficult for Republicans to embrace those things. I mean, last night I talked with a guy who was a former legislator in Colorado. There was a terrible murder of a sheriff's deputy in his district and by a severely mentally ill young man. He tried to pass a red flag law in Colorado and he was hammered for it. The gun rights groups came out and blasted him for it. The bill didn't pass, he lost the election. And this kind of a thing is very, very difficult for Republicans to do what David is saying, which is to embrace even the most minor things. So I'm confused by something. So whenever any of these things, these mass shootings happen, or when we get into a discussion about gun safety or gun control, whatever you want to call it, that we always hear that the majority of gun owners, the majority of the members of the NRA, they're law-abiding and they support all of these background checks and, and everything, right? But then I hear stories like this, where legislators who apparently try to reflect the broader membership of the NRA to do the right thing, they get hammered by gun rights groups. So at some point, someone is going to have to have the courage, like this legislator that you talked about, yeah, he lost his election, um, and, and I'm sorry for him, for you know he did the right thing and got hammered for it, but we need more Republican legislators to step out there and be on the side of the majority of the American people. It takes political courage to do that. And I respect the fact that the Republican Party and gun rights groups are way over here. But how do we break the cycle? How do those majority of NRA members who are with the majority of the American people who want some sort of gun safety regulations, how, how do we get the laws to reflect them? Yeah. So that's I have, where I'm I, have, I have a theory. I have a theory. Okay, yes. good. <laughs> so I, I another case, uh, in addition to the guy you interviewed, Chris Jacobs, uh, first-term member of Congress from the Buffalo area, was said I, he was shocked by the events. Said I, and he was a big NR, he was supported by the NRA. He said, no, we need to we need to ban assault weapons. We need to do that. So he lasted a week, <laughs> and now he's not running for re-election because every Republican in his district basically said you're. That right. happened today. That happened today, uh, and so my theory is what's happened is. A lot of gunners, and we have ample evidence of this, do support a lot of these things we're talking about. But the Republican Party, like the Democratic Party, has become not just a political party that passes legislation, it's become a cultural tribe. And tribes are held together by loyalty. And tribes are held together by taboos. And it has now become a taboo in the Republican Party, having nothing to do with the substance of guns. It's just a marker. If you're a member of our tribe, if you belong to us, you do not do anything on guns. You also believe the election was stolen, and these are tribal markers. And I have trouble seeing us breaking that tribal mentality, which demands uniformity, unless our overall politics becomes less polarized. Uh, and how, when, how that is going to happen, well, we've been struggling with that for a few decades. Yeah. 
Um, Jonathan, I want to ask you about something that we heard Amna talking about with um, Elizabeth Williamson earlier. And it's something I haven't been able to get out of my mind, which is the parents in Uvalde having to be swabbed for their DNA because the children were unrecognizable in those classrooms because of the weapon that was used against them. And it has led some people to say, to shock the country's conscience into action, we ought to consider showing people what these weapons do more graphically. What do you think about that proposal? So, like you, when I saw the news, it it just broke my heart. Imagine you're going to this place where you are fearing the worst about your child is dead, and you're going to go identify the body, and then a person comes to you and says, we need to swab your cheek because that's the only way we're going to be able to identify your child. I don't have children, and it just tore me to pieces. Please excuse me for that that, um, turn of phrase there. I go back, and I think I side with former Homeland Security um, Secretary Jay Johnson, who wrote an op-ed where he said, you know what? We need to see. We need to see um, the bodies. We need to see this for the very reason you were just talking about, in order to shock the country, not in a prurient way, but in a way that says we must do something here And I go back to Mamie Till. Um, Her son, Emmett Till, was lynched, totally disfigured in Mississippi. And she decided, you know what? The world, the nation needs to see what they did to my child. And when she did that, as shocking as it was, it advanced the cause of, of civil rights in this country. I would not want to be a a parent that would have to decide whether that's a choice I would want to make. But if a child were, I'm sorry, if a parent were to do that, were to have the courage to, and the heroism to say, I want the nation, I want the world to see what an AR-15 did to my child. I would support that parent 1,000%. Um, it, I, I'm sorry, I'm just rendered, I'm rendered speechless by just even having to talk about this, but I don't know what else, it's, what else can be done to just get any kind of action to protect, to protect families. Um, David, I'm sorry. I would love to hear your take on this. We don't have time for that tonight. (laughs) I agree with Elizabeth. (laughs) David and Jonathan, always good to see you both. Thank you. Thanks, William. The nation has been searching for answers after the racially motivated massacre in Buffalo and some general election matchups that could have far-reaching political consequences are taking shape, while other primary races are still too close to call. For analysis on all this, we turn to Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Hello to both of you on this Friday. It's very good to see you, although we start with another very tough story, David, and that is we began this week with that awful uh, mass shooting of black Americans in Buffalo. What does that 
say to you about where we are as a country when it comes to race and when it comes to guns? Well, Jonathan can speak to this more than I, but I think one of the truths of 400 years of this country is that it's hazardous to be a black person in America. And that comes from slavery, that comes from discrimination, that comes from lynching, and it comes from white supremacists and racist violence. And so that's just a reality. Uh, and those who stoke it do it in a lot of different ways. And one of those is a theory that says a race of one group of people is going to swamp a race of another group of people. Using those categories, using that language, the great replacement language, that is ineluctably tied to a culture uh, of racial hostility. And that's just a fact. I think it's perfectly legitimate to have a wide variety of views on immigration. But when you start using those racial categories and talk about replacement and swamping and on the white America under threat, you're feeding into a culture. Ideas have consequences, and it will lead to violence. And Jonathan, I mean, there's almost an inevitability about this now. I mean, are we as a country accepting that this is just part of who we are? Um, uh, who some yeah. of us are. I yes, um, I, I appreciate David's David's words at the outset of his um, answer. Look, I remember the first time I got an email from someone who had read something I'd written in the Washington Post years ago who was complaining to me about white genocide. That's the term, that was a term of art then, white genocide. Whites were being killed off and, and replaced. Now the great replacement theory is the, is the happy, smiley face of the white genocide um, um, thinking out there. Back then, it was the fringe. Back then, this was a person out there in, in the far-right swamps. But then President Trump comes in and takes the lid off of our national demons. And now what we have are sitting members of Congress, people in the leadership of the Republican Party in the House, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who are trading in this, in this language. They might not use the, act wor the exact words, great replacement theory, but everything else that they talk about is parroting those talking points. When the great replacement theory is given a home and aid and comfort by leaders in this country, what, are, what else are we to expect? And that is, the, that is the danger that we're in right now. We have seen far too many communities of Americans being targeted by people who adhere to this great replacement theory. We've, now, we've seen blacks targeted, Jews targeted, Muslims targeted. At some point, this nation as a whole will have to start taking this seriously, and leaders, Republican leaders, need to speak up if the great replacement theory does not speak for them. David, do you see any signs anywhere that people are taking this seriously enough to, to in a way that we may be able to come together and have a serious conversation about this and address you know, who we are right now. Yeah, well, I think we are having a conversation. It's been four or five years since at least 2014 in Ferguson. Uh, it's been at least a, years of, um, of difficult conversations, which many people have been in the middle of. So I think it's been a, a, an era of progress, not necessarily on racial harmony, you wouldn't say that, but deeper understanding on a part of a lot of people of what the experience of black America is. At the same time, that some people have become better educated, some other people have become radicalized. 
And this is a combination of just the, the racist genotypes that have flown through our history. It's a combination of mental health problems. It's a combination of the extreme social isolation that drives people to seize on to these rabid anti-Semitic and racist conspiracy theories and want to take some action. So at the same time, I think we are having, having progress uh, in America on racial, at least communication. Uh, we're also seeing reaction against um, significant, as Jonathan says, a significant minority. Do you see any uh, glimmer uh, of, of progress on this? I suppose the glimmer of progress is that when I say what I just said in response to your first question, that I'm not going to get a bunch of blowback from people saying, what are you talking about? Uh, you're over, you're hypersensitive. Um, uh, that won't happen again, because I think because of Ferguson, because of George Floyd, where the two-year anniversary is coming up next week, because of the litany of things that we've been through, racial things that we've been through over these years, that the conversations we, we have been having over the years are much more sophisticated, much more nuanced, doesn't mean that we're, we're making the leaps of progress that, that I hoped we would, but at least when we have these conversations, there's no one saying, oh, well, you're being crazy. Well, we know that this is one of the issues that is going to be uh, playing out in this year's uh, midterm elections, and we have, David, some results uh, to look at again from this week. Um, and let me ask you first about the, the Democratic primaries. Uh, there, were, there were several primaries in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and other states. We see uh, for the Democrats in a few races, important races, progressive candidates came out ahead of the moderate, so-called mainstream Democrat. What, is that, what does that tell us about what shape Democrats may be in in the fall? Well, there's some, there was some supposition when then Joe Biden got elected that uh, we would we, we had this moderate Democrat in the White House and that we would the polarization of American politics would maybe slow down or stop. Uh, we can now toss aside that hope, uh, and so it is not. I think the progressives did indeed do quite well uh, uh, this week, and whether that will hurt Democrats uh, in the fall if they pr pr present people who are less electable. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I look at John Fetterman, who won the the Democratic primary for Senate in Pennsylvania. I find him a very attractive figure and probably a politically compelling figure. He's the six foot eight guy who wears Carhartt, he dresses working class, he wears baggy shorts. I think if you're a progressive Democrat and you can show you have nothing to do with East Coast cultural elites, you're in pretty good shape. Uh, and so that guy has clearly made this cultural statement about who he is. And he's gonna get attacked for being for Medicare for all or for other left leaning policies. But he strikes me as a pretty compelling figure and it's maybe a new sort of, a different kind of really work, aggressively working class progressive that we haven't seen a lot of, frankly. But that's not what uh, the, the mainstream Democrats in many of these races thought would happen. Right, but I think as I look at these races, I keep thinking about when we're, when we're talking about Democrats, we're talking about them. Are they progressive? Are they moderate? And when we do that, we're talking about issues. As David just said, Medicare for all is one of them. Canceling student debt is, is another one. Um, expanding ex expanding health care. You name the policy, there's some moderate versus progressive thing going on. But when it comes to Republicans, yeah. we're not talking about policies. It, 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 everything revolves around Donald Trump and the big lie, and where the, those respective candidates 
fall um, in in that uh, in that little play. So when we get Democrats and Republicans in the general election, it's going to be the Democrat talking about policies and the Republican trying to show just how much they are close to Trump. I'm still trying to understand what the general election really is going to look like. And in fact, David, we did see in the, in the Republican primaries in these states, I mean, whether former President Trump's chosen person came out on top or not, to a candidate, most of these Republicans don't believe Joe Biden won legitimately. Yeah, didn't Dr. Oz have, have a proposal to reform the federal budget process? Wasn't that part of Dr. Oz's thing? Uh, you know, uh, I think one thing I learned about the, the Republican Party from the, the last week and really the last two weeks is there was some thought that Trumpism could be contained. It could either be contained by building a wall of non-Trump candidates around him or through in the party, or you could have establishment pig, figures sort of embracing Trumpism at the same time they watered it down which is normally what insurrection, what happens to insurrections. I think we, that's another theory we can toss out because Trumpism is now pervasive in the party. And if I had any lesson to draw, it's that Trumpism is actually bigger than Trump. And so his, his own personal endorsements do make a difference clearly. But the nationalistic posture, the populist posture, the talk about the stolen election, this is all now pervading the party. Uh, and so what will the fall election be like? Uh, I think it will be about none of these things. I actually think it will be about uh, inflation, crime, uh, schools, and the culture wars. But So I don't think it will be about stopping the steal, because if Republicans are going to get punished for that, they already would have been punished for that. And they, they have, in the polls, at least, they have certainly not been punished. But it's definitely a, a, a Trump Trumpist party right now. We'll pick up on that, Jonathan, because one of the culture war issues is what, of course, that, that Supreme Court leak opinion from a few weeks ago. Uh, we have a new poll, the NewsHour did with Marist and, uh, and NPR, showing something like two-thirds of Americans don't want Roe v. Wade to be overturned. Um, does that give us some kind of sense of what happens? We don't know what the court's going to do, but right. if the court comes forward with something that looks like that leaked draft... What does that say about the, where we are headed in these elections? Well, it says we're, we're headed for a very bumpy road. It says that the Supreme Court doesn't care about public opinion. The, the support for Roe v. Wade has all, there's always been a majority American support for Roe v. Wade. The fact that a, an opinion, draft opinion was leaked and we got to read it, knowing where the American people are on this issue and still a majority of the court in this draft draft opinion wants to overturn Roe v. Wade, I think that says more about the court than it does about the American people. And I understand that it's a co-equal branch of government and that they should be separate and apart from the people, but the people will rise up. I mean, the American people are will be very concerned if the official ruling from the Supreme Court in that case looks anything like that draft opinion. Less than a minute, David, but what do you think it, it uh, portends if, uh, if the court comes up with uh, what it looks like they're going to and, and public opinions in another direction? Well, setting aside this particular issue, I'd be proud that the Supreme Court ignored public opinion. That's their job. <laughs> their job is to look at what's in the Constitution and make a decision. So I, I, that part I think they did absolutely right. The second part of the, your poll was showed how while people want to keep Roe, they also are very moderate or somewhere in the middle on what restrictions they want to see on abortion. And that 
as Lisa said the other night, they, somewhere between 15 and 22 weeks is where most people would like to see some sort of restrictions come in. I'm very curious to see if there's a single state that gets there because the parties are so so incredibly polarized on this issue. Well, uh, it's uh, it's one that we are watching very closely in the in these weeks to come. Uh, it uh, it promises to hold all of our attention for the rest of this year. David Brooks, Jonathan Capehart, thank you both. Thanks, Judy. reported earlier, it was another devastating weekend of mass shootings as lawmakers in Congress and states consider possible new gun safety regulations. John Yang has more. Omna, the trail of gun carnage since Friday night stretches across at least 10 states, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Michigan, Tennessee, Arizona, New York, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Texas, Georgia, Nebraska, and Virginia. The toll, at least 17 people dead and more than 50 injured. In Philadelphia, a brawl on a crowded street Saturday night turned into a gunfight, leaving three people dead and 12 more hurt. Larry Krasner is the Philadelphia district attorney. I went to the scene myself the morning after the shooting to see what was there. And it was chilling. No less chilling that it happened in more than 10 places around the country. Many healthcare providers say gun violence is a public health issue. After the NRA said physicians should stay in their lane, dozens responded with stories about treating gunshot victims with the hashtag, this is our lane. One of them is Dr. Joseph Sacrin, a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore and himself a survivor of a life-threatening gunshot wound. Dr. Sacrin, thanks so much for being with us. So much attention comes to gun violence after horrific events like Buffalo and and, and Uvalde. Uh, But talk to us about the routine results of gun violence that you see in your emergency room. Yeah, well, thanks so much, John, for having me. And I think you're absolutely correct is, you know, we often in America talk about gun violence as it relates to these mass shootings, and that gets significant media and public attention. But the reality is, is that the mass shootings comprise less than 2% of the overall public health problem. And every day in cities like Baltimore, where I work, we have young brown black men, we have high school students, we have pregnant moms that are being slaughtered on our streets. And we frankly have both the opportunity and the responsibility to make sure those stories are told, because that's what we are seeing all across this country. 
you, uh, you're a physician. You treat gunshot victims. You yourself were shot when you were 17 years old at a high school football game. What do you see as a physician? What do you see in your life, daily life as, as a survivor about the, the, the surviving victims of gunshot wounds, their daily lives, their experiences that gets lost, do you think, in the coverage? Yeah, I think I think that's so important. As you allude, I come to this conversation both as a survivor as well as now a trauma surgeon. And of course, we often talk about the physical injuries, but there's also the mental and the emotional trauma that takes place. You can imagine what a child must think when they're sitting in a classroom and they watch their friends literally being killed in front of them. It's absolutely horrific, and we have the opportunity to change that. Is there an extent to which there's re-traumatization every time an event like this happens and it fills the airwaves, it fills the headlines? Yeah, absolutely. I think every time this happens, it not only traumatizes the community, but it's re-traumatizing the entire country. I mean, you look at what you know, children in schools all across America are going through, 75% of them are worried that a mass shooting is going to happen in their own school versus trying to focus on education. So I think there is some truth to this re-traumatization. And I'll tell you something else. Far too long, we have sanitized this conversation around gun violence in America and, and talked about it as shootings. I think it's time that we pull back those curtains and allow the American people to understand the horrific and senseless tragedies that are witnessed by very few. And that was, as I understand it, one of the goals of your uh, This Is Our Lane, uh, hashtag This Is Our Lane uh, effort. Can you talk a little bit about what your goals and intentions are in, in that? Listen, when, when healthcare professionals came out after the NRA essentially told us that we uh, don't uh, uh, belong in uh, coming up with a solution around this complex public health problem, we were incensed because here we are the ones at the center of the problem, taking care of the patients, but also having to talk to these families and loved ones. And so for anyone that understands the complexity of this, they'll realize that no one person and no one organization is gonna be able to solve it on this on its own. You began this effort four years ago, and not, I have to say, not much has changed since then, and, and that these incidents keep happening. Is that frustrating to you? Does it anger you? Do you become numb to it after a while? How do, how do you react to that? Well, look, I've been working uh, around gun violence prevention for way longer than four years. And, you know, when you look at what's happened, you know, let's say since Sandy Hook, the past decade, right, of course, it's frustrating that we have not seen change at the federal level. But, John, let's not be mistaken. The country is not the same as it was 10 years ago. Most governing in America happens at the local and state level. And in fact, if you look, hundreds of pieces of common sense gun legislation have been passed in states and cities across this country. The problem is, is that we live in a nation that has porous borders. So it's time that we shore up those borders. Is it happening quick enough? Absolutely not, because every day we have children, young people, and others that are being killed because of gun-related injuries. So we must do better. Dr. Joseph Sacron from Johns Hopkins Hospital, thank you very much.
Thanks so much, John, for having me. Let's turn now to the subject that has consumed much of the nation this week and the past several weeks, gun violence and the lasting impact of these mass shootings. We're going to hear from a number of voices about that subject tonight. Amna Nawaz begins our look. William, as we know, Congress and the two parties have been deadlocked in a stalemate for years over what measures could or should be taken. In a speech last night, President Biden called for Congress to pass major bills, including a ban on assault-style weapons, expanded background checks, age limits on purchases, and red flag laws. In doing so, he cited some of the cities and communities devastated by past shootings. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time that can't be true. This time we, we must actually do something. Imagine what it's like for children who experience this kind of trauma every day in school, in the streets, in communities, all across America. Imagine what it's like for so many parents to hug their children goodbye in the morning, not sure whether they'll come back home. Unfortunately, too many people don't have to imagine that at all. Of course, Tulsa, Oklahoma and Uvalde, Texas are now the latest communities to struggle with all of this. In Uvalde alone, there are five funerals and visitations today. Elizabeth Williamson of The New York Times has extensively covered the many ways these attacks affect communities for years afterward. It's part of the focus of her new book called Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Amna. So you talked to families in, in Newtown about that Sandy Hook shooting we all remember so horrific and that moment immediately afterward when the world is watching and the media has descended, you talked to them about what they felt in that moment, what they were going through. What did they share with you? What was it like? So the families that I spoke with talked about this sense of, you know, the media onslaught kind of feeling like prey almost that, you know, there were so many requests for interviews. Um, the presence of the media kind of even altered the landscape of the town. Um, there was an influx of goods and services and money that was very disorienting um, that, you know, people really struggled to accommodate and even to store. Um, and then, of course, there was the appearance of conspiracy theorists, people who claimed that the shooting never occurred at all, and were following the families, digging through their trash, looking in their windows, um, and generally really tormenting them in those first weeks and months. This one part of it really stuck with me when you talked about um, what you call the global spasm of heartbreak and generosity, because I think we see this again and again. People want to help. They send messages. They send gifts. They send donations. What did the families in Sandy Hook, in Newtown rather, tell you about, um, as you put it, how burdensome some of that was in the time? Yeah, I think, you know, it is um, a wonderful thing about Americans um, that they open their hearts and their wallets and they want to send any kind of help they can. Um, but when you have so many people doing that, you have this influx of 68,000 teddy bears, you know, enough mail that they had to open a new substation of the post office. Um, they had to get a warehouse space. And so for the families, while they really appreciated that sort of upwelling, 
happening. What they also struggled with was what do we do with all of this and, and how do we accommodate it? How do we store it? Um, how do we acknowledge it? Um, how do we use it? And also the money that came in, there quickly arose a dispute over, you know, who that money should go to. And, you know, it's been established since that that money should definitely go to the families and the survivors. Journalists often get accused of sanitizing the issue, um, of not speaking sort of more bluntly about the brutality of some of these attacks, particularly when you're talking about children. What do you hear from the families about how they see this argument, about whether or not those kinds of more brutal and graphic images should or shouldn't be shared? I have yet to speak to a Sandy Hook family member that would be in favor of having those photographs released. They are extremely painful and traumatizing to them. And while I know, you know, because I've written about this, that there are a number of people who, you know, and policymakers even, who think that these would have an impact on the debate, that they would move our country out of its official inertia. But because I've looked at disinformation around Sandy Hook and around so many other major events, I actually think that these photos could have a different impact, and that's that, as Lenny Posner, the father of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, said, it could just intensify and add fuel to the disinformation that circulates after mass shootings. People could produce those photos in different contexts. They could be mailing them or emailing them to the families themselves. They could be used as an additional source of harassment and pain. And so I think that any release of that type of material would have to be up to the individual survivor and family member. And even then, the families tell me, you have to consider how the release of that material by one family member would impact all the others, and that is a worry for them. You know, Elizabeth, I heard this on the ground in Uvalde, too, where people said, we understand why you're here, but we know the cameras are going to leave, the attention will fade, and we as a community will be left to grapple with this. And we have been forever changed. Based on what you learned the Sandy Hook families have endured over the last 10 years, What can you say about what's ahead for the families in Uvalde and Tulsa and so many other communities? What these communities face, Amna, is a reverberating loss. It kind of radiates outward like fallout from the event itself throughout the community. There are impacts that people in Uvalde, just like in any other community where this type of violence occurs, that no one can predict. You know, there will be a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, uh, a lot of stray voltage emotionally that really impacts how a town pulls through. These... These immediate aftermaths do not lend themselves to redemptive narratives. It's not a triumphant kind of story. It's a long, hard, painful slog for a community where this happens, and it is a very long healing process. That is Elizabeth Williamson of the New York Times, author of the new book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Amna. As the city of Tulsa begins to grieve its losses, hundreds of mourners in the community of Uvalde, Texas, have been coming together for the funerals of those who were killed in last week's shooting. Amna Navaz is back with more on how that community is coping. 
Jeff, it's been just over a week since the shooting in Uvalde, but families and community members are just beginning to navigate their grief. Counselors and mental health providers are making themselves available to the community to help cope with the trauma and the loss. Joining me now to talk about her work in Uvalde and best practices for those dealing with this tragedy is CEO and Clinical Director of San Antonio Counseling and Behavioral Center, Dr. Martha Livingston. Dr. Livingston, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for joining us. You and I met down in Uvalde when you had just arrived with your colleagues from San Antonio. You set up shop in a number of clinics and basically said, anyone who needs our help, we are here. Come on in. So give me a sense. During your time on the ground there, who came to see you? What were they sharing with you? Yeah, we um, you know, felt the need uh, compelled to go down there, um, being only an hour and a half away um, and, and having the ability to, as a therapist, to help people going through this crisis. Uh, we actually linked up with the pediatrician from that community, the only pediatrician in town, and he allowed us to use his clinic as a, a safe space. Uh, so people uh, were able to come in, whether it was um, first responders, um, siblings of, you know, some of the victims uh, and family members. And what kind of things were they sharing with you? I imagine in those early days, there's a lot of shock. So what do people say when they come to you? Yeah, uh, well, they, you know, they came from different uh, perspectives in terms of like uh, their involvement. Either they were in the school, some of the children, um, some of the relatives, uh, even some of, like I said, some of the first responders or even the physician himself who was on call that night and was triaging the children at the hospital. So we were able to talk to just a variety of, of people um, that obviously were in shock, but also sharing their stories. Um, so I think that um, just as human beings, we we need to share our experiences and what we dealt with. And that's one of the ways that they you know process what they've gone through. Um, so our job was really to listen to them, to validate um, what they had seen and then experienced um, to help them process it. What about the children you mentioned there, many who, the many hundreds of children who, who made it out of that school, the ones who survived? I spoke to the mother of one who'd been incredibly traumatized being in the classroom where the shooting happened. But so many children are trying to process this. What do, what do you say to them when they come to you? And what are they like when, when they come to you? What questions do they have? Yeah, we saw one particular child who was very traumatized, you know, still shaking, you know, from the experience and really thinking that the shooter would come back. Um, so they're really still in that space um, and trying to help them make sense of it and, and making them feel um, safe is really key. Um, I know the parents are struggling to find the words to say to make them feel like things are going to be OK in this sort of time where, you know, we, you know, it's okay to not be okay. You know, even while one of the parents brought their two daughters, um, he was actually a first responder himself who was there um, and was assisting some of the children that were actually still in the classroom. And so feelings of guilt um, that he was talking about that, you know, he was telling some of the children that they were going to be okay when really maybe they weren't okay. You know, I think that the, the need is great all across the board in that um, in that city in terms of like the, the impact that they've had on, the, on their lives. And it's here for long term. It's not something that they're going to be able to you know, get over in just a week. 
Dr. Livingston, as we speak here today, of course, we're just covering another mass shooting in Tulsa yesterday. The Uvalde shooting followed the Buffalo shooting two weeks earlier. People watching around the country are also uh, feeling a toll in, in their own way. I wonder what you can say to them about why and, and when they should seek support and how to talk to children about this. Yeah, certainly. I think that um, the parents need to uh, be transparent with their children and talk about what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Um, they're obviously exposed to it. We can't shelter them from it. They're going to be seeing it on social media, on television. Uh, and so really um, helping their children um, make sense of what's going on in the world. And if they feel that they need professional help, um, there certainly are resources for them in and around the, their communities to, to, to access. Uh, parents, um, really our job is to protect our children and to make them feel safe. So one way to do it is to have routines and have like um, an environment where they feel safe and that they can talk about whatever it is that they're, you know, might be going through. So very useful tips there. Dr. Martha Livingston, CEO and Clinical Director of the San Antonio Counseling and Behavioral Center. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Mourns the victims of mass shootings in Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo. As the nation mourns the victims of mass shootings in Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo. As the nation mourns the victims of mass shootings in Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo. As the nation mourns the victims of mass shootings in Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo. As the nation mourns the victims of mass shootings in Tulsa, Uvalde, and Buffalo, President Biden will address the nation tonight and urge Congress to pass common-sense gun laws. A bipartisan group of senators continued conversations this week to figure out what, if anything, can gain the required 60 votes to pass. And today, the House Judiciary Committee considered its own slate of proposals. The committee's top Democrat and Republican disagreed sharply over the issue. Too soon? My friends, what the hell are you waiting for? You say that none of the solutions proposed here will stop gun violence in America? Well, there, sadly, I agree. This bill will not alone save every life we will lose to gun violence this year, but it will save some. This bill would not stop the terrible events. It wouldn't harden schools, but it will sure take away the rights of the American people who follow the law. That's what this is all about. Leanne Caldwell is anchor for Washington Post Live and co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. She's been following the debate in Congress and joins me now. It's good to have you here with us. And the House Judiciary Committee, as you well know, they are considering what is really this mega bill. It's eight pieces of legislation wrapped into one. It does everything from raising the age to purchase semi-automatic weapons to, the, to 21. It outlaws high-capacity magazines and bump stocks. It requires background checks for ghost guns, among other things. But nowhere on this list is an assault weapons ban. Mm -hmm. Why not? Well, because an assault weapons ban, my sources tell me, don't have the votes even in a Democratic majority in the House of Representatives. Even in the House? Even in the House, it doesn't have the votes. The bill has 207 co-sponsors. It needs 218 
Democrats most likely to pass. And there's a, a number of people who aren't signed on to this bill. And I'm told by leadership aides, by rank and file aides, that they are struggling to find those additional Democratic votes in order to reach that 218. Speaker Pelosi announced today in a letter to her colleagues that she's going to hold a hearing on an assault weapons ban, but that doesn't mean she's gonna bring it up to the floor. And then on a parallel track over in the Senate, you have Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy, who came to Congress representing uh, the Newtown community. He is leading this bipartisan effort, and they are focused on what I'm told is a fairly narrow set of gun reforms. Yeah. Uh, red flag laws, which William just told us about, uh, expanding background checks, adding funding for mental health services, mm -hmm. for school security, are there 10 votes, are there 10 Republican votes in the Senate, based on your reporting, to get that ultimately to the president's desk? Well, there's a number of Republicans who are involved in these negotiations. So theoretically, if they come to an agreement with someone like Senator Cornyn, who's very close with leadership, Senator Toomey, perhaps, Lindsey Graham is involved in these negotiations, then presumably they would have the 10 votes. I don't think that they would announce an agreement unless they did, but we'll see. But let's be clear, these things that they're talking about are very, you know, they're kind of around the edges. They're not going to address, um, uh, you know, raising the age of assault weapons. It's not a lot of gun restrictions. What it's trying to do is just to put some safeguards around the opportunity to purchase guns with these red flag laws, perhaps just incentivizing states to strengthen their red flag laws. As far as the mental health component is concerned, something that Republicans are really focused on, um, it's not really clear what they're going to do about that. T saying mental health is the problem is one thing. Legislating that is a whole other issue, and mm -hmm. we'll see where they come down. Help us understand Mitch McConnell's role in all of this, the Senate Republican leader. He, early on, encouraged uh, John Cornyn, the Texas Republican, to work with Democrats to find some compromise here. This is the same uh, Republican Party leader who, in the past, has blocked a number of gun reforms to include red flag laws, which even senators like Senator Marco Rubio had supported. Marco Rubio <laughs> introduced two red flag uh, law, pieces of legislation onto the floor and never got a vote under Mitch McConnell's leadership. Is this a change of heart? Help us understand his reasoning here. Well, a lot of Democrats especially are skeptical about what Leader McConnell is saying. Um, some people think that he has put John Cornyn into these negotiations to make sure that there's not a really impactful legislation that or agreement that comes to the floor, something that's very minor that doesn't really do that much. The other thing that you have to think about with Leader McConnell, as you well know, is that Everything is calculated in what is going to win him back his majority. Mm. The midterm elections are just five months away. And so he reads the polls better than anyone else. He has a lot of inside information. He will do nothing that harms his members who are trying to beat Democrats. And so he is deciding what he, he is making this decision on what he is saying based on what the polling is saying at this moment. Whether that translates into actual legislation that is going to pass, we will see. But over the past couple of days in Kentucky, Leader McConnell has kind of defined what the realms of this is. He said this is not gun restrictions, this is not gun laws, it is mm -hmm. school safety and it is mental health. And that is much different than something like red flag laws, that's different than background checks. Leanne Caldwell, The Washington Post, thanks so much for your insight and analysis. Of course.
Recent history suggests new gun reforms are more likely to emerge out of state houses rather than Washington. Recent history suggests new gun reforms are more likely to emerge out of state houses rather than Washington, D.C. Recent history suggests new gun reforms are more likely to emerge out of state houses rather than Washington, D.C. Recent history suggests new gun reforms are more likely to emerge out of state houses rather than Washington, D.C. Over the coming days, we'll explore some of the proposed and recently enacted policy experiments across the states. William Brangham begins our coverage with an examination of extreme risk prevention orders, more commonly known as red flag laws. The measures, which are in use in 19 states, allow guns to be temporarily seized if family or law enforcement believe someone is a risk to themselves or to others. On New Year's Eve four years ago, a sheriff's deputy was shot and killed in a suburb south of Denver by a man suffering serious mental distress. That killing prompted a Republican state representative to introduce a red flag law in the Colorado legislature. But that lawmaker then came under attack from conservative gun rights group. His law didn't pass, and the representative lost his next election. His name is Cole Wist. He's now a lawyer in private practice, and he joins me now from Colorado. Um, Cole, great to have you on the news hour. Uh, just playing off this example that motivated you to introduce this bill, can you help us understand how your law would have worked? Who contacts the authorities? Who judges this? Who makes the decision that it's okay that someone should have their guns taken? Well, good evening, William. It's it's great to be with you. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about how this would have played out under the, the 2018 bill that I introduced. <clears throat> and that is that, that the family members or law enforcement could apply for an extreme risk protection order. And they would swear out an affidavit, uh, submit that to a judge. And if the, if the judge agreed that it met a threshold determination that the individual posed a risk to himself or herself or others, then the judge could issue a temporary order that would allow law enforcement to remove firearms from that individual. Under our bill in 2018, there was uh, a, a three-day period that, that the court would then hear uh, whether or not that order would be made permanent. And we had a very high level of due process that was required to be met by the movement, by the movement or the person that was seeking the protective order. And under our bill, the, the person seeking to remove those firearms would have, to, would, would have had to have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that that individual posed a risk to themselves or others and that removal of weapons from that person's possession was necessary to accomplish those means. There, there then would have been an opportunity, if the, the order was granted, six months later to then consider whether or not that order should be renewed or dissolved and the person could receive their, their firearms back. In the version of the bill that passed in 2019, those periods were extended quite a bit, in fact doubled to 364 days if an ERPO is, is entered against uh, someone. So you were a Republican legislator, a, a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, and yet this conservative gun rights group came after you. They called you a gun grabber, they called you Cole the Mole, uh, and they passed out flyers attacking you. How did that sit with you, having this kind of blowback? Well, it, it strikes me that, that we miss the mark when we talk about mass shootings or incidents like the one that motivated me to, to 
to sponsor this legislation, and that is these are matters of public safety. And in all other cases, and if you look at cases of domestic terrorism and the mass shootings that we've seen in the United States over just the last week, these are domestic terrorist incidents. Um, and when we look at domestic terrorism, our government has not been hesitant to make sure that we're doing everything that we can in a proactive fashion to make sure that we protect public safety. But when you enter the word gun in this conversation, it freezes the parties. And in my particular circumstance, I guess if, if you could identify a sin that I committed as a legislator, and that is having the willingness to talk to folks on the other side across the political spectrum about solutions that we can put into place to protect constitutional rights, to make the burden of proof very, very high for someone seeking to, to, to deprive someone of the possession of a weapon, and yet at the same time recognizing that there is an important public safety concern here that's not being addressed by our current laws. And that's the reason I was motivated to, to introduce this piece of legislation. Given your experience as someone who tried to reach across the aisle and introduce something that, again, to many people listening to you would think, that seems like a reasonable, sensible approach. Does that give you a sense of pessimism that anything is going to come out at the national level? Because leaders here in Washington, D.C. right now are trying to do exactly what you did, to reach across the aisle to try to figure out how can we stop these tragedies from occurring. Given your experience, do you think that there's going to be any hope here? Well, you know, I'm always hopeful, but uh, I'll give as an example an exchange I saw on Twitter last night between a radio show host and Senator Cornyn from Texas. Um, and Senator Cornyn in the past few days has expressed some willingness and openness to talking to folks about um, expanded background checks, red flag laws, things that we can do to try to protect public safety. He was called out uh, uh, for those efforts last night and he immediately retreated back to his corner and said, no, I'm not gonna introduce anything that relates to guns. So, you know, again, if, if we really talked about this as a public safety issue, as trying to address domestic terrorism and not focusing on the gun issue, um, then I think we would make a whole lot more progress. But unfortunately, when political tensions become high, as they are particularly with this issue, folks retreat to their comfortable corners and whenever folks are in their corners, they're not talking to folks across the political spectrum. And frankly, they're not solving problems that we need to have solved. Um, in just the last few seconds that we have, do you have, do you feel strongly that red flag laws should be passed nationally? Do they really work to prevent these cases, these tragedies? Well, we have uh, red flag laws in 19 states. And one of the first states to pass one of these laws was Indiana. Um, and I don't think anyone would suggest that Indiana is uh, a blue state by any means. But, you know, I think they paved the way and showed that you can do this in a way that protects constitutional rights um, and, and still protects public safety. Uh, in, the, in the couple of years that Colorado has passed this law, there's been a lot of analysis done in terms of whether or not the laws have been abused or whether or not this law has been abused. And I think you know, if you look at the data, it shows that uh, to the extent that folks have sought these orders uh, with frivolous facts or without a legal basis, those have been denied. So the law is working. The law can function. Former Colorado State Legislator Cole West, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. My pleasure. and gospel music located at 231 6th Avenue here in Beatrice, Alabama on House C Internet Radio. We are your Internet Radio House C Production Gospel. Thank you for listening to House C Internet Radio. Enjoy the best in gospel music. Radio, located at 231 6th Avenue down south in the big city of Beatrice, Alabama. We are your internet radio station. Stay right where you are. Choose today, God, our gun. Which one? America has more guns than people. 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 Did you? Are you sure? Yes! America has more guns than people. So you should be calling America guns. 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 How many guns do you have? How many guns do you have? Do you have your gun with you? Do you carry a gun? Are you sure? How many guns do you have? How many? Oh, you got a place. You got a... Oh, how many guns? Five? You can't shoot with one at a time. How many guns you got? Oh, it's for protection. Oh, protection. I thought God was your protector. America. Love guns and guns in America. Hmm, that's a book you need to read. Christian Fresnel. Got a book out about it. Oh, you need to get your hands on that. Read it, read it, read it. Oh, America will have to choose between God and the gun. Or is it guns and God? What? What? No. Are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose? Oh, okay. All right. Guns. Guns. Oh, you can choose gun. Oh, you need protection? Oh, okay. You need protection. God is not your protector. I'll see. Internet radio. Located at 231 6th Avenue. How see. We are your internet radio. Beatrice, Alabama. How see. Internet radio.
I know it was Jesus. I know it was Jesus in the past. But now it's the gun. It's the car. It's the house. It's the trip. It's the money. It's the bank. It's the marriage. It's the party. It's the sex. What are you into? What do you think is going to save your soul? Will it be the gun? What do you believe will be the source of your savior? Jesus. save you or who do you think is going to save you it's not going to be the gun maybe you think it's going to be music no your angel? Who is your angel? Is your angel that double barrel shotgun or that AR-15? What is your angel? Who is your angel? Have you left God? You've given God up for the gun?
God while you still can. You know he says in his word that one day that's going to be a drought. It's going to be a drought. There will be no word from God. When are you going to call on him? Today? Tomorrow? Next week? I suggest you call on him right now. Sixth Avenue down south in the big city of Beatrice, Alabama. Guns and America. That's the focus of this session. We hope you're not relying on a gun.
rock of my soul, rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham, or rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham, or rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham. Why don't you rock of my soul, rock of my soul, rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham, or rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham, or rock of my soul, in the bosoms of Abraham. Why don't you rock of my soul? My soul is glad. And the devil is mad Cause he missed the soul That he thought he had Rock on my soul Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Why don't you rock on my soul Rock on my soul Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Rock on my soul In the bosoms of Abraham Why don't you rock on my soul
LLC Radio, located at 231 6th Avenue down south in the big city of Beatrice, Alabama. We are your internet radio station. Stay right where you are. I'll see internet radio, located at 231 6th Avenue. House C, we are your internet radio. Beatrice, Alabama. House C, internet radio. 